0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. We come today to a passage of great importance, a passage which speaks about matters of eternal consequence, which has also generated a lot of controversy throughout church history. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 16. Today we're going to be in verses 13 through 28. Today we're going to ask five questions. Who is Jesus? How do we learn the truth about Jesus? What has Jesus come to accomplish? How did Jesus accomplish it? And and how should we respond to the truth about Jesus? Let's start with our first question. Who is Jesus? You got look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We read, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and we'll stop there. Over the last few chapters, Jesus has done some traveling. He's largely been going through Gentile territory. And we've seen why Jesus has been doing this travel among the Gentiles. First, because Herod Antipas, the puppet king of Galilee, had taken an interest in Jesus. But the time was not yet right for Jesus to run afoul of the political leaders of his day. So he's been spending less time in Jewish Galilee to avoid Herod. And second, the last two times that Jesus has been in Jewish territory, he's encountered a delegation sent to him from Jerusalem of religious elites who have come to try and discredit and attack him. But again, the time is not yet right for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and take these guys head on. So Jesus is largely staying outside of Jewish territory, seemingly waiting for something before taking the next steps, before going to Jerusalem. But what is Jesus waiting for? Well, I think the next three chapters show us Jesus delays going to Jerusalem and meeting his destiny until his disciples are ready. Jesus has to teach them some more. He's got to grow them a bit more before it's time for the climax of the story. And Jesus is now going to educate his disciples on some fundamentals here in Caesarea Philippi, another Gentile area, a mountainous area northeast of Galilee. Verse 13, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now this phrase, Son of Man, comes from the Old Testament. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus often uses it to refer to himself. So Jesus is basically asking here, who do people say that I am? And the disciples ought to know the answer to this question. They spent a lot of time around the common people. Remember, they'd gone on a missionary journey through Galilee preaching about Jesus, and they'd done crowd control for Jesus when he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. The disciples are well positioned to know the popular sentiment about Jesus. And here's what it is. Verse 14. And they said some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We saw back in chapter 14 that Herod, in his guilt over murdering John the Baptist, had come up with this idea that Jesus was John resurrected, sent to get revenge on him. But other people might have drawn this same conclusion that Jesus was John the Baptist for more rational reasons. After all, Jesus had been associated with John's ministry, as had several of his disciples. And Jesus preached the same message that John preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So people who weren't paying close attention may well have confused Jesus with John. In the same way, it's easy to see why people might have confused Jesus with Elijah. Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament who was known for performing mighty miracles. And Jesus was certainly famous for performing miracles too, right? We'll see next week. Many first century Jews had an expectation that Elijah would appear before the Messiah came. So these folks might have said, hey, Jesus, he seems to be like Elijah. He's got to be the forerunner of the Messiah. But they don't apprehend that he's actually the Messiah. In the same way, it's easy to see why people might have mistaken Jesus for Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a godly prophet in the Old Testament who spoke against corruption in the religious and political leaders of his day. And he was rejected for speaking the truth. Just like Jesus spoke the truth about the wicked leaders of his day and suffered rejection. I want you to see that all three of these approaches to Jesus treat Jesus with respect. They all say he's godly. Many of them treat him as a prophet. They certainly held Jesus in higher regard than the elites in Jerusalem did. And yet all of these perspectives are quite wrong. Because while there might be good reasons to confuse Jesus with John or Elijah or Jeremiah, each of these perspectives holds Jesus in far too low a regard. In the same way in our society today, there are many people who have different views about Jesus. And I think you'd find that just like 2,000 years ago, if you ask people about Jesus, most of them are going to talk about him in fairly respectful ways. People will say, well, Jesus, he's, he's a good guy. He had compassion for the poor. He's like Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Or they'll say Jesus was a great philosopher and prophet because he was so wise well, I remember during my recent housing search, I came to a house that had an altar to a number of Hindu idols, and in the middle of them was a picture of Jesus. Here was a person who thought Jesus was a God. And the people that hold these various views would think that they're talking about Jesus and thinking about Jesus in a very high and respectful way, and yet each of their perspectives is also wrong, because each of these perspectives holds Jesus in too low a regard. So, if these views are wrong, what is the truth about Jesus? Jesus asked the disciples, what do people think about me? Now he asked it to the disciples directly. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question Jesus put to his disciples. And friends, that's the question Jesus puts to each one of us. We need to understand that this question in the end only has one right answer. We live in an age of shocking relativism. And it's even permeated the American church to an embarrassing degree. There's all this talk today about living my truth and fake news and alternative facts. But friends, you need to know in the end, this question has only one right answer. And it's the answer supplied by Simon Peter in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we know that's the right answer because of the way Jesus replies, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Jesus blesses Peter because of his reply, because Peter spoke in the truth. Friends, this is the ultimate question. Who is Jesus? And Peter says two true things about Jesus here. First, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all of the hopes and expectations of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is God's agent who will accomplish all of God's purposes for salvation and judgment. And second, Peter says, Jesus is the son of the living God. Now, Back in verse 14, when Jesus walked on water, the other disciples said, truly you're the son of God. A light bulb had gone off for them. There's something unique about Jesus. Jesus does what nobody else can do. Jesus does what the Old Testament says only God can do. And now Peter again says Jesus is the Son of God. And based on the way Jesus replies to to Peter here, it seems that Peter has had a watershed moment. He has come to an even deeper understanding of who Jesus is than the other disciples. Now, I'm not saying in this moment that Peter grasped a comprehensive doctrine of the Trinity and Christology. You know, Christians would wrestle with some of these concepts for centuries before articulating them in the way that we understand today. But Peter has come to a profound understanding of the uniqueness of Jesus. There is something divine about Jesus. And friends, that's absolutely correct. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. And now his disciples are starting to understand and believe it. And friends, this is why. The crowds in Jesus' day and all the well-intentioned people of our day get it wrong when they talk about Jesus being a good man or a prophet. Because it's not enough to say he's a good man. It's not enough to say that he's a holy man. It's not even enough to say that he is a God. No, there is only one true God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God, the Son, in human flesh. And to view him as anything less then the incarnate second person of the one true God is to commit blasphemy because it is to denigrate Jesus infinitely from who he truly is. Friends, we must know that this truth that Jesus is God is an essential, eternity-defining doctrine of the faith. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that word, Lord, is most often used in the Bible to describe God. The confession that Jesus is Lord, the confession we must make to be saved, is a confession of the deity of Jesus. And if you reject that, then you are lost. John eight twenty four. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Do you believe today that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If not, you remain under God's wrath. But this leads us to our second question, which is how do we learn the truth about Jesus? How did Peter learn this truth? How how do any of us learn this truth? Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's faith is not a human product. It's not like Peter used his wisdom and his intellect and his biblical knowledge to put it all together and figure it out. No, Peter's faith has come from one source alone here. His understanding has come from God the Father. The Father has sovereignly acted. He has revealed the truth about Jesus to Peter. And friends, the Bible's clear that anybody who comes to understand the truth about Jesus comes to that truth in the very same way. It's not because they have anything in us or about us. No, we arrive at that truth only because God chooses to reveal it to us. Jesus said back in chapter 11 of this book, listen to this, "...I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Did you catch that? God chooses to hide the truth from some people and to reveal it to others. That's what Jesus says plainly. That's what the Bible says. The initiative in salvation belongs exclusively to God. Now this truth is repugnant to many in the American church today because we prefer the sentiment of Henley's poem Invictus I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's who we want to be. We want to be in charge. If we're saved, we want it to be because we made good decisions. We made wise choices. We are quick to believe in the supremacy of human will, and we are quick to reject the truth of divine sovereignty and its supremacy. But, friends, I must tell you that is an unchristian and an unbiblical approach. We must reject false, man-exalting theology. We must believe what the Bible says. The initiative of salvation rests entirely with God. Because in our lostness, we cannot apprehend the truth of the gospel unless God reveals it to us. Listen to this, a famous verse, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him except for the intervening work of God and His Spirit, we cannot apprehend the truth of the gospel on our own. Now, I'm not saying that God has not made a good faith offer to all the world. Of course He has. He has called all people. He has said, come and believe and be saved. That's how the Bible ends. The Spirit says, come. The bride says, come. Come, take the water that's free. In fact, in Matthew 11, right after Jesus says, the only people that that know the Father are the ones that He chooses to reveal Him to. The very next verse, He says this come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus has made a true invitation to all. The invitation is real, but you've got to understand in the end, the only people who are going to take him up on it are the people whom God has chosen to reveal himself to. So if we believe in the end, it's because God has enabled us. God has opened our eyes to the truth and drawn us. That's how it was for Peter, and that's how it is for everybody who's ever been saved salvation is not a human product. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is truly a gift from God, Ephesians 2 says. And friends, that is such a comforting reality because that means our salvation is not dependent on us. And, And I think that also assures us when we worry about the fate of a loved one. That person's fate is in God's hands. And that means we need to pray for them. Because what that lost person needs is they need an understanding of the truth of Jesus and his gospel. And we see here only God can give them that. So friends, when we evangelize the lost, and we must, we've got to do it prayerfully. We've got to ask God to do the work only he can do. Yes, we've still got to speak the words. right? It's not like, well, I'll just pray and then hope God saves them and I'm never going to talk to them about Jesus. No. But we need to p- pray that God would take our words and use them to supernaturally do what only He can do to bring about real understanding in the lost. All right, come now to our third question. We said Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but what does that mean? What has Jesus come to accomplish? We get some insight over the next few verses. Jesus continues speaking. Verse 18, He says, And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, if you look at the previous verses, you'll see Jesus calls Peter Simon over and over again. But now Jesus draws attention to this other name that this fellow has, Peter. What's the significance of the name Peter? Way back when Simon first met Jesus in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now Jesus spoke Aramaic, and in Aramaic the name here is Kepha, which has come down to us as Cephas. And this word Kepha means rock, And in Greek, the word for rock is Petros, which is where we get the name Peter. So if you've ever wondered why this guy has so many names, that's the deal. His given name is Simon, and Jesus gave him this other name, Rock, which has come down to us in all these languages and versions as Cephas, Cephas, Petros, or Peter. Now, when Jesus gave Peter this name Rock, he did so long before Peter made this profession of faith, long before Peter rendered any act of ministry. The name's prophetic. Peter would prove to be a Rock. And now years later, as Peter makes this confession, he begins to fulfill this prophecy. And Jesus reminds him, says, remember, I gave you this name, you're the rock, you're Peter. And now Jesus proceeds to say some really astonishing things. Verse 18, he says, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It doesn't take much effort here to see these are really significant words. And I've got to tell you, they're also highly disputed. The way these verses are interpreted forms one of the major dividing lines between Roman Catholic theology and Protestant theology. Because the Roman Catholic Church views these verses as central to its understanding of the church. Roman Catholic Catechism says, "...the Lord made Peter alone the rock of his church." He gave him the keys of the church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. And they claim that this means that Peter could speak unilaterally with, quote, full supreme and universal power, binding heaven and earth. So basically, whatever Peter says goes. Peter says, you're forgiven. God's got to honor that. Peter says, you're going to hell. God's got to honor that. Peter says, sin's okay. God's got to honor that. Whatever Peter says goes in heaven and earth. And they claim that after Peter died... This unique position, authority, and power passed on to Peter's successors, the popes. And through the popes, then, so to the the totality of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this claim is so massive and outrageous that it's really almost impossible to discuss these verses without having to deal with the Catholic interpretation. And I think that's a shame, because it means that these verses are rarely ever considered in their own context or on their own terms. The discussion's always about what Rome is saying about these verses. But I really want to try to resist letting Catholicism drive our agenda this morning. Yes, we've got to talk about Peter here. But let's primarily focus on what the text says. And I think these verses tell us three important truths about why Jesus came to earth. Number one, Jesus came to form a people for his own possession. Verse 18, Jesus says... And on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus declares that he will, future tense, accomplish something. He is going to build his church. Now, the Greek term translated church here means an assembly, a group of people. So Jesus intends to construct a particular people group, a people for his own possession. A population that is new, that is distinct from what came before. Hence the future tense verb. Now this is significant because of course the expectations in Jesus' day were that the Messiah is here to benefit only Israel. He's going to crush the Gentiles. He's going to make Israel strong again. But we've seen in the last few chapters of this book, Jesus has indicated his ministry is not only about Israel. His blessings will run to Jews and Gentiles alike without distinction. And now we see that Jesus intends to establish a new body, a new people group. He's not just working through Old Testament Israel anymore. Rather, he's building one new man, Ephesians 2 says. A new humanity comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles alike. Friends, this is a major reason why Jesus has come. To build his church, which is his bride. Peter puts it like this in his first epistle. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Paul in Titus 2 says he has come to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus has come to win and establish his church. Now Jesus says he's going to build that church upon this rock. What rock? Well, over the years there have been lots of arguments about whether the rock here is Peter, whose name, of course, means rock, or whether it refers to something else to Peter's confession or to the Lord Jesus himself. I think it's safest to understand the rock here as Peter's profession of Christ. Arguments that try to avoid associating the rock here with Peter entirely miss the context and the wordplay that Jesus engages in. Jesus has just drawn direct attention to Peter's name. And then Jesus uses the same basic Greek word when he speaks of building his church upon this rock. Now, In the Greek text, there is a slight modification to the word rock. It is a little bit different than Peter's name, but it's the same basic word. And if Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which is very likely, based on the grammar of that language, he would have used the exact same word when talking about Peter's name and this word rock. He would have said, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will build my church. That all draws a very straight line towards Peter. But I do not think it's satisfactory to simply say that rock is the person of Peter. Because Jesus does seem to hedge this statement a bit. He doesn't just say, you're Peter and I'll build my church on you. Rather, he inserts the word this. And in the Greek text, there is this slight difference between Peter's name and this word rock. So, in context, I think the best explanation is that Jesus is pointing to Peter's proclamation that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, people might object to that, and they might say, hey, hey, the foundation stone of the church is Christ. It cannot possibly have anything to do with Peter. But I would remind you of Ephesians 2.20. The household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Certainly, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the Lord of the church. He is the one who builds this church, not Peter. And Jesus demonstrates his lordship over Peter by giving him a new name. That's an act of a superior to an inferior friends, we cannot deny that Jesus' apostles were foundational to the church. And specifically, what was foundational was their preaching and teaching about Jesus. That's what we see in the early chapters of Acts, right? The 12 established the early church. And among the 12, who is at the center of all the foundational events at the beginning of the church? It's Peter. Peter leads in the replacement of Judas in Acts 1. Peter preaches the sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2. Peter preaches the sermon in Solomon's porch in Acts 3. Peter speaks before the Jewish religious elites in Acts 4 and 5. Peter is the one who has the vision declaring all foods clean. And Peter's the one who sees Cornelius, the Gentile, come to faith in Acts 9 to 11. Peter, in his capacity as an apostle, professing Jesus, clearly takes center stage in the history of the church, just like Jesus said he would. Now, that is not to say that Catholicism is right about Peter. There is no biblical sense in which Peter had authority over the other apostles. Yes, he seems to have been their spokesman and leader. He certainly wasn't their prince, as the Catholics teach. You see that in Galatians 2, when the apostle Paul rebukes Peter for his sin of hypocrisy when Peter acts against the gospel. So Peter's not infallible and beyond correction. He's not the Lord of the church. Jesus is. And Jesus' gospel is ultimate, not the person of Peter. Neither is there any sense here or anywhere else in the Bible that Peter was invested with some office that he has transmitted to successors. There is no biblical basis for the papacy. But I do think Jesus here prophesies what will happen in the early chapters of Acts. Peter will occupy a central foundational role in the early church through his proclamation of Jesus. Now, the second thing Jesus says here is the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the church. The church will not suffer ultimate defeat, it will triumph. Against what? Well, this phrase is usually understood to speak of Satan and his demons, and it's certainly true in Colossians 2 that Jesus has triumphed over Satan and his demons. In fact, Paul tells the Romans in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But it's worth noting the word hell in Greek here is Hades, which we pronounce as Hades. And in the New Testament, that word doesn't usually speak about Satan, it speaks about death and the grave. Indeed, very similar phrases appear five times in the Old Testament and four times in Jewish intertestamental literature, and all of the references speak about death. So I think more than talking about spiritual warfare here, Jesus is using a figure of speech that was understood in his day talking about death. And what Jesus says is death will not have the final word over his people. The church will triumph over death. That's quite a promise, right? Death's a big deal. Jesus says, my people triumph over death. And we'll see how that comes to pass in just a minute. But now we come to the third thing Jesus says. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now at first, these sound like tremendous powers have been given to Peter. That Peter can speak on earth and bend heaven to his will. That is not what these verses are saying. The reason it sounds like they are is because of a problem in translation. I'm going to try really hard not to give you a boring grammar lecture here. But I want you to focus your attention on these phrases, shall be bound in heaven and shall be loosed in heaven. Now these phrases read to us like they are using future tense active voice verbs. That what Peter declares on earth shall happen in heaven. However... In the Greek text, these are not future tense active voice verbs. These are future perfect tense passive voice verbal constructions. That is an extremely rare grammatical feature in Greek. There are only six examples in the New Testament, and I think that's why about two-thirds of the English translations do not reflect this here, although about one-third of the modern translations do. Say, okay, what does all that mean? Okay, here's, here's what this means. Rightly understood... These verses are not saying that what Peter says on earth shall happen in heaven. Rather, they are saying that what Peter declares on earth reflects what has already happened or has already been decreed in heaven. What Peter binds and looses on earth is that which shall have been bound in heaven. See, Jesus isn't abrogating his lordship here and punting it to Peter. Rather, Jesus is saying what Peter and the other apostles decide on earth reflects the will of God above. The church's acts are to be the outworking of the decree of heaven. And this is the third critical truth we've got to see here. The church exists to do the will of God. And notice I said the church here and not simply the apostles. I've known people that have taken the statement about binding and loosing and say, oh, that's only about the early part of Acts. No. No. Jesus expects his church will perpetually undertake acts that reflect the will of God. And we see this just two chapters later in Matthew 18. Jesus is talking about the church's exercise of formally disciplining its members. And in that context, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the same language in Greek. See, Peter's given his church, not just Peter, Not just the apostles, he's given even local churches the keys of the kingdom. The responsibility to undertake acts and decisions that reflect what God has spoken for all time in his written word, that is incumbent upon every church. The local church has the absolute authority and responsibility to act consistently with the scriptures, and we should do so with great confidence. So I think rightly understood what these verses tell us is Jesus has come to form a people for his own possession, the church, a new population comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles, which will triumph over death, which has been authorized and charged with acting in line with God's will, of seeing that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But this leads to our fourth question. How will Jesus accomplish this? Well, that's what we see as we continue. Verse 20 Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Wait, what? Jesus just commended Peter for saying he's the Christ, and now he doesn't want the disciples to spread that news to anybody? What's this about? I think the answer has to do with the baggage of the word Messiah in first century Judaism. First century Judaism, lots of people expected a Messiah, and they all had a very strong expectation about what he was going to do. He's going to kill the Romans. He's going to make Israel powerful again. And if at this point in his ministry, Jesus allowed himself to be acclaimed using this title, two things were going to happen. First, lots of people would flock to Jesus, not because they were interested in his message, not because they were repenting and believing, but because here was a chance to get vengeance on Rome, or here was a chance to behave badly and kill some people, or because they were consumed in nationalistic fervor. But see, Jesus isn't interested in having his movement co-opted by people with sinful agendas. He isn't interested in being publicly attached with this incendiary title at that time. He doesn't want to have to battle the baggage of what it means to be the Messiah. No, he just wants to define his ministry on his own terms. Then define its parameters without all of that baggage. But second, if Jesus was publicly acclaimed by the disciples at this point to be the Christ, it would invite an immediate response from Rome. Who killed would-be messiahs and people they perceived to be rebellious or insurrectionist. And we've already said Jesus wasn't interested in having it happen right then. It wasn't the right time. So he doesn't want the disciples publicizing this truth. He's the messiah, not yet at least. Okay, well, if Jesus isn't going to be a warrior messiah, that the, the one that the people expected, what kind of a messiah will he be? And we find out now, as for the first time in this whole book, Jesus plainly tells his disciples... Where his journey leads, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. This is the true agenda of the Messiah in his first coming. Jesus says there's gonna be four things. First, he's gotta go to the capital where the religious elites are, second, he's gotta suffer at their hands. Third, he's got to die. And fourth, he will rise from the dead. That was God's plan and purpose for his Messiah. And friends, it always had been. Isaiah prophesied in his book, chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what the Messiah came to do in his first coming, to be a suffering servant, to die for human sin. Jesus says in chapter 20 of this book, he comes to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's how Jesus establishes his church. Way back in chapter 1, it was prophesied of Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Here's how. He's going to die in our place. And he's going to rise from the dead. Now this all leads to our final question which is how should we respond to the truth about Jesus. What Jesus says here makes total sense to those of us who live on this side of the cross, which is all of us. Uh, When Jesus says he's going to suffer and die and rise, we understand it because we know what happened to Jesus. right, We know he was crucified. We know he rose from the dead. But this would not have made any sense at all to his disciples because up until this moment, for their whole lives, they had believed, like every other first century Jew, that when the Messiah comes, he will vanquish Rome. And he will give power to Israel. They have no categories for a Messiah who suffers rejection and death. This would be as shocking and foreign to them as if I were to say to you, when Jesus returns in his second coming, he will lose and be killed again. I mean, that's a shocking statement to us, right? It's a total violation of every expectation and category we have surrounding the second coming. That's how what Jesus says here would have sounded to his disciples. So they are shocked. Verse 22, and here's how shocked they were. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter, in his shock, decides to rebuke Jesus. He tries to correct Jesus' theology. you got it all wrong, Jesus. You're the Messiah, so you can't die. You've got to win. This will never happen. What amazing arrogance. Peter's totally forgotten who it is he's speaking with. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus won't tolerate this disrespect, and he responds with a rebuke of his own. Verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You might translate this a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus associates Peter with Satan. A moment before, when Peter spoke, he spoke a truth that came from the Father. But now as he speaks, Jesus detects a different source. Because Jesus has heard this voice before. You can have a crown without a cross. So it was offered to him back in chapter 4, when Satan said, all the kingdoms of the world I will give you, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus rejected that temptation by saying, be gone, Satan. And here he basically says the same thing to Peter. Now, the idea is not that he's banishing Peter from his sight, but rather, as Jesus says, in this moment, Peter has become a stumbling block to him. And when this language of a stumbling block is used in the New Testament, it means far more than a temptation to sin. It means a temptation to ruin. And that's what Peter's statement is. It is a temptation to ruin. A temptation to Jesus to ruin the Father's plan, to ruin the prospect of humanity's salvation for the sake of his own personal comfort. And Jesus won't have it. This temptation cannot remain before him. It's got to get out of his path. Because Jesus knows he has to go to the cross. But Jesus then kindly explains to Peter why Peter has gotten this so wrong. Because Peter's understanding of the Messiah's agenda is not God's understanding. Peter is following the wisdom of the world and not the truth of God. And friends, we as Jesus' people must resist the false wisdom of the world and we must submit only to the wisdom of Christ. And Jesus now gives us a very clear directive on what that looks like as he tells us how we should respond to all of this truth we've seen so far this morning as he talks about the right response to him. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The wisdom of this world tells us that our lives should be about self-protection and profit. We want to gain as much of the whole world as we can and keep it for as long as we're able. The bumper sticker says, He who dies with the most toys wins. Friends, that is a false approach to life because judgment is coming. Because the Son of Man, Jesus, will come again and he will bring about God's purposes for salvation and judgment. And friends, all of our deeds will be examined. Everything that we have done in pursuit of self, of pleasure, of profit, of our attempt to gain and keep the whole world. And friend, if you do not cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus, you will face the everlasting wrath of God for your sins. And Jesus says, when that happens, what will all of the profit and all the success that you have have gained you? Friends, eternal judgment is a catastrophic total loss. It relativizes and trivializes all of the gains of this world. Who cares if you enjoy a billion dollars for a few decades and then you face everlasting darkness and fury? That's not a good exchange to make, right? And for most of us, We're content to risk God's wrath for a lot less than a billion dollars. It's pure folly. But friends, there is another approach to life. The approach of the wisdom of Christ, the wisdom of God. Just as it was necessary for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, Jesus says there's a similar path for all those who would belong to him. We must deny ourselves. That is, we must turn away from the wisdom of the world. We must repent of the mindset we used to have that life's all about me and what I want. We've got to die to all of that. And instead, we've got to follow a different path. But Jesus calls in chapter seven, the narrow road, a path which Jesus says is like taking up a cross and following him. Following him where? To the place of execution. That's what taking a cross meant in the first century. Making the long walk of hardship and suffering, bearing the scorn of the world, facing pain. This is the second time Jesus has told us in this book that this is what it means to follow him. Matthew ten thirty eight. he says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is necessarily what it means to belong to Jesus. This is what saving faith looks like. We turn from our old life and we follow where Jesus leads us and directs us, even though it's demanding, even though it's painful and it's difficult. And yes, we won't do it perfectly, but this is where real repentant faith leads to the hard road of following Jesus. My friend, hear me on this. This is the only road that does not terminate in the loss of your soul to judgment. Now, you might not like this. You might say, it sounds so demanding. I've got a nice, easy life. That's not really what Jesus means. Really? Read the text. Maybe you want a faith that only asks for a minimal commitment from you. Pray a prayer once and I can get back to living how I want. Maybe you don't like this because it sounds so hard. I want a faith that promises me unending happy days and lots of health and wealth. But friends, who are we to talk back to Jesus? Will we be like Peter and dispute the truth with the Son of God or will we submit to his word? Friends, to belong to God, we must resemble the Son of God. We must walk the path he trod, the hard road that bears the cross. We must follow him in self-denial. We must battle and reject the false pleasures of the world and the flesh. We must be willing even to suffer scorn and persecution for Christ. It's hard, but it's worth it because Jesus says this is the only path that promises deliverance from the judgment that's to come. Again, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The hard path is the path of safety because it's built on the cornerstone of Jesus. But our passage doesn't end just with this hard word. It ends with a glorious promise of hope. Look at verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Man, this is a difficult verse. Because at first it sounds like Jesus is saying some of his disciples will live until the second coming. And that didn't happen. Which has led some critics to say Jesus made a false prophecy here. But it's clear that the earliest Christians did not think this was a false prophecy. Because if they did, they wouldn't have stayed Christian for very long, right? Or they would have tried to cover up this embarrassing detail. But no, Jesus made this statement, and the early church saw nothing false in it at all. They apparently understood that what Jesus said here had come true. Some of the disciples had lived to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How? There's two possibilities. Many people take this as a reference to the transfiguration, which we're going to talk about next week, in which Jesus manifested his glory before his disciples. But I think more likely is the idea that this points to Jesus' resurrection, his ultimate vindication. And glorification. Because Jesus explains the significance of his resurrection like this at the end of this book. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. After his resurrection, Jesus clearly has come into possession of an infinite kingdom and dominion. Now, to be sure, that kingdom has not come in its fullness on the earth. But clearly in heaven, Jesus reigns. Ephesians 1 says, The Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. Friends, Jesus reigns over all things. He has come into a glorious rulership. And the disciples lived to see that. They lived to see Jesus triumph over death and receive this authority. And more than that, Here we see how Jesus secures a victory over death for his people because Jesus is risen. And so everyone who belongs to Jesus will one day be made like Jesus. 1 John 3 says we will be made like him. We also will rise to eternal joy and life in his presence. Yes, friends, weeping tarries with the night. Yes, the Christian life is hard. The self-denying war against sin and the scorn of the world. These are painful realities we must endure to the end. But joy comes with the morning. Jesus is coming back. And he will come back as the triumphant conqueror prophesied in the Old Testament. And he will bring his people victory over Satan and sin and death. And so, friends, today I must ask you, who is Jesus Do you confess him as Lord and God? Or will you rob him the glory that's due his name? Do you see why Jesus has come to to win a people for his own possession by dying for our sins? That he comes to bring us eternal life by rising triumphantly over death? Friend, have you trusted Christ? If not, I pray that God would shine the glory of the gospel into your life and that you would repent and believe in Jesus, that you would turn away from the false wisdom of the world and follow him. Friends, if you do know Jesus, I must ask you, how are you doing in this life? What are you pursuing? Have you fallen back into the paradigm of the wisdom of the world? Are you living to gain and keep profit as long as you can clutch it? Are you living for self Or are you engaging in the daily battle against your sin? Are you willing to publicly testify to Jesus despite the world's opposition? Friends, whatever deceitfulness sin whispers to you, whatever it's trying to deceive you with, resist it. Deny it because Jesus is coming back and he is bringing victory with him. Perseverance is worth it. So friends, let us deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Because that alone is the road that leads to infinite gain and eternal life.